Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Hollywood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with SSE Berwick Bank. We all want a clean energy system that creates jobs, tackles climate change, and supports local communities. But to get there takes more than just ambition. It takes action. In Berwick Bank, Scotland can build the world's largest offshore wind farm. That's right, the biggest anywhere, creating thousands of jobs in the process. SSE, as Scotland's clean energy champion, can't wait to get started as soon as the project gets the green light from the Scottish Government. Learn more at berwickbank.com. The podcast starts now. Welcome to the Hollywood Sources Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us for some festive fun. We are looking back at some of our biggest interviews this year, most of which actually have made headlines. You might have read about them in, well, most of the papers, actually, over the course of the year. And what we're doing, by way of reviewing the year, is letting you hear from politicians within the same party. So you may already have heard the SNP episode. That's in your feed. Have a little scroll back. Have a listen to that. And today, we're highlighting our guests from the Labour Party who have joined us throughout this year. And let's start, shall we, with the leader of the party in Scotland, Anna Sarwar, who joined us back in April, actually, not long after we'd started the podcast. And here he is telling us, in his words, what it means to be the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. I think you can approach leadership in, in different ways. Um, and, you know, some leaders have thought their job is to get opposition right in the parliament. Um, some leaders have thought their job is to speak to the base and to amplify uh, the views of the base uh, and their own membership. Um, some leaders have thought the job is just to roll into First Minister's questions and then roll back out again and then roll back in again. Uh, to be honest, uh, mm. the job, I think, of leadership is, uh, one, is to uh, develop people 
and that means change your political party, develop people, develop the infrastructure, develop the campaign machine, develop the messaging machine. Um, secondly, is to decide, uh, think, take it a different way. Uh, analogy I often use on my team is, imagine we were in pri the private sector and you were a new cola company like Pepsi trying to compete with this massive machine of Coca-Cola. What you would do is you would say, okay, how do we improve the product and make it the best product available? That being the idea is the manifesto. How then do we sell the product? That's around marketing. That's your media operation, your digital campaigning. And then how do you persuade people to be loyal to that product and to buy the product? That's the campaigning infrastructure and then also the winning of the elections part. That for me is how I view it, my role within the Labour Party is getting it back on track, making it a credible organisation again, demonstrating we're changing, demonstrating we're modernising, demonstrating we're facing the future. Second, being out there engaging. So most of my time that I spend is not in the parliament. I'm actually only in the parliament one day a week. I like to spend most of my time really? outside of the parliament, talking to people, learning from people, learning from their experiences, but also learning from the ideas so we can build a manifesto come the election in 2024 and 2026. And then the third part of that is developing people. Uh, we have a people problem. Uh, and I don't mean that in terms of a lack of talent or a lack of numbers of people. We have a people problem in terms of we've got to bring those people together, uh, help them, support them, navigate them through so they can be future candidates, future government ministers, future special advisors, future uh, comms directors in, within our own political organisation or indeed in government. We are going to build that infrastructure so we can take on the criticism, something that I saw one of uh, your colleagues in the media make, I think, a right criticism, I think, of us uh, just at the weekend, which is we need our opposition parties not just to look like they're a credible opposition, they need to look like they're a credible proposition that they could somehow lead this country and govern this country. That's what I'm trying to build in the Labour Party. Anas, um, really interesting uh, um, stuff you said there, uh, particularly about getting out and about out with the Parliament. And um, a recent poll, Ipsos Murray, uh, in terms of favourability kind of levels, had uh, a positive rating for you of 26%, um, an unfavourable one of 30%. But most importantly, I think, was 36% were not sure, unaware, which tells me that you know a lot of people don't know you quite yet now you've been a leader for a few years and and, and i wonder how much of your approach uh, going into the the general election indeed the, the holiday election thereafter is a balance between right attaching yourselves to policies but also ensuring that the brand um of anasarwa is out there as well and introducing you because there is obviously an opportunity there is a window here for you to kind try and go through and 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 establish yourself but i find that quite a large percentage of people still not perhaps sure or who who you are as an individual and a politician yep. so how do you strike that balance going forward i, I think you you make a really good point uh, jeff and it's been it's been two years rather than three but um but a lot's a lot's happened in that two years I, I think i think it demonstrates a challenge um so the way i think about it in my own head is um, when I took up leadership two years ago, only 7% of people in Scotland believed Labour would win the next general election across the UK. And we were at some polls 16%, some polls 18% in the polls. Two years on, we were, as I say, two years ago, 32 points behind the SNP. 
Um, in recent polls, in some polls it's five points, some polls it's eight points, depending on which uh, poll you look at. And over 50% of people now believe Labour can win the next general election. So th th those two frames have shifted significantly. Where I think we've still got job work, job work to do is one, of course, to build up a personal brand, and that personal brand's got to be more than just what we see them out and about. It needs to be based on ideas and a, and a vision for the country. I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware of that, about building that positive alternative. Um, but there, again, there's no shortcut to that. that. That is a hard slog, particularly when you're in the Scottish Parliament terms, the third party where you're competing to get in the news package at all, and people aren't even watching the news packages anymore unless they're of a certain age in terms of watching those uh, television. Uh, people are now opting to to choose what they watch, when they watch, through streaming, etc., and and indeed via via podcasts. So in that sense, the only way I can get cut through is being out there on the streets, the old style campaigning, doing more town hall events, doing more engagement events, doing more round tables, doing more receptions, but then also building up our digital infrastructure. And let me give you an example of what I mean by digital infrastructure. When I took on the leadership two years ago, the average reach of the Scottish Labour Party across all our channels was 30,000 people a week. Now, that's woeful. At the same time, the SNP's re weekly reach was 1.5 million people a week across all of their channels, whether that's their leadership eh, or indeed their party channels across all different platforms. We have gone from 30,000 a week to now reaching almost a million people eh, a week in terms of our digital channels. So, so, so that demonstrates the job of work we've got to do partly on the street, partly round tables, partly in the parliament, partly broadcast, partly digital. But the big bit that's missing, I think, that we have got to work on between now and the next general election and the next Scottish Parliament election is I think we've probably persuaded lots of people why we think the Tories and the SNP deserve to lose. I think the hardest part in politics is now persuading people why Labour deserves to win. And that's the bit that mm. in this phase of, of leadership I'm relentlessly uh, wanting to pursue is both in terms of what a growth plan is for Scotland, how do we develop that, and an NHS plan, something you discussed with Gene Freeman, I thought that was a great podcast actually, an NHS and social care plan mm -hmm. that's about building the NHS fit for the future. They, those for me are the two big areas that I want us to develop over the coming year. Just, I was, I was going to come in on something else actually, uh, but just on that, since you mentioned it with Gene, because that was a really good podcast, and I mean, you obviously will know Gene from your time together in the Parliament, um, and I'm sure, like most people, have got a high regard for Gene and, and her abilities and the fact that, mainly the fact that she is not tribal and she actually has a lot of good ideas and wants to work with people. I thought the most interesting thing that Gene said in that whole podcast was that before COVID, she was talking to the Royal Colleges and other stakeholders about significant NHS reform. Um, now that chimes actually with the person who I think is, you know, the leading commentator on health in this country at the moment, which is Wes Streeting, who appears to me to be the person who is pretty boldly standing up there and saying, this is not about... Mm. <laughs> 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 this is <laughs> but I, of course I would never say anything bad about Jackie Bailey I was talking about UK White um, no, I mean you know West Streeting is, is unashamedly standing up there and saying this is not about money right we can't just throw money into this and expect it to get better that's not going to work anymore and Jean said the same thing on the podcast I am interested in whether or not there has to be a bit of a difference 
in the message that UK Labour gives to the message that Scottish Labour give because I wonder if Scottish Labour, if Jackie standing up and saying sorry folk, this is no longer just about chucking money into this black hole we've actually got to start again and reform the health service is that a message that sits as easily for Scottish Labour and Jackie and you as it does for West Streeting and Labour throughout the UK? Yes, and we've said it, and I'll I'll say a bit more about that in a second, but but, but I think just because you mentioned Jean, I think it's important to to say something, uh, because obviously, you know, I I was leading the campaign around the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital and justice for the the families impacted by the infection scandal and uh, and for the whistleblowers who were the clinicians on the front line. And I've honestly got to say that Jean Freeman becoming health secretary was a game changer in terms of the relationship that the clinicians, the patients had with uh, both government and indeed in terms of delivery of the inquiry into the Queen Elizabeth. And I honestly think, and uh, you know, Jean Freeman and I had lots of arguments, we disagreed about lots of things politically, of course, but I never doubted for a second when I was having those conversations with her both in the parliament, but more often in private, that she was true to her word and that she was on, she was true to her word, not just to me, but to the clinicians and to the families to make sure we got answers and justice. I think the tragedy of it is, is that when she vacated that uh, position, and uh, I'm not making a, a deliberately political point here about Hamza Youssef, but there is, a, there is a problem here, is that when Hamza Youssef became the health secretary, he, be, he very much became the symbol and the voice for the machine of the National Health Service rather than trying to challenge the machine when the machine was getting it wrong. Whereas Gene Freeman was willing to challenge the machine and knock heads together to get answers. And I honestly think we've gone backwards in terms of support for families, confidence of families and confidence in the, uh, from the clinicians about getting the answers to the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital since Jean uh, vacated that post. And for that reason, and many other reasons, but for that reason in particular, I will always have Jean in particularly high regard and respect for her because she was willing to take on what is quite a powerful NHS establishment in order to get answers uh, for families. Um, on the wider issue, um, m- money is not going to solve uh, the National Health Service. But but you can't say money's not important in the National Health Service. Of course, resource is important. But actually, there's four parts to how we're going to reform and rebuild the National Health Service. One part is resource, but the other three parts are in many ways even more significant. Second is workforce. We have not got a credible workforce plan that's going to build the NHS of the 21st century, even though we're 23 years in to the 21st century. So how do we get the workforce right and redesign that workforce, a focus more on primary care and wraparound community care rather than a focus on acute care is the only way we're going to resolve many of those challenges to make it a preventative service rather than a reactive service, which the which the NHS often feels like um, it is. The third part is going to be design. The design of our National Health Service is completely wrong. At this moment in time, we have, what, 50 boards for a population of 5 million people. So you've got the 14 territorial boards, you've got the five or six specialist boards, you've got the 31 integrated joint boards. Why do we need all these chief executives, all these financial directors, all these managers, all this bureaucracy for a National Health Service of 5 million people? So so we need reform of the system. And the fourth bit is technology. The innovation in technology, both in terms of rapid diagnosis, but also of innovative treatments, is the route out of 
all this huge pressure on the acute sector uh, and how we use technology and procure that technology differently from the current model within the National Health Service is the, is the route out. So our plan uh, is uh, we are doing as much of the work that uh, Jean was talking about with the Royal Colleges. We are in the process of doing similar work where we have set out that frame is on resource, workforce, um, service design and technology, how do we rebuild and renew the National Health Service from the ground up? It needs a wholesale rebuilding if we are going to make it fit for the future. Now, you're just getting kind of short segments, really, of our conversations. We had an hour with the uh, Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sarwar, in April. So you can listen back to that. However you're listening to this, just have a little look at the episodes that are in your feed. Just do a bit of scrolling, scroll back, scroll back. There's about one episode a week, so it won't take you that long to get back to April. And you can have a listen to Anna Sarwar in full. Now, in September, what we did was marked the independence referendum anniversary. Now, it was the ninth anniversary, not usually one you commemorate, but we wanted to get in there on Hollywood sources and hear from those who were there, who were involved, who were part of it. Joanne Lament was leader of the Labour Party at the time of the independence referendum in 2014. And have a listen to this, all right? Pay attention because Joanne Lament's response and feelings on the independence referendum campaign, I think you'll agree, are still pretty raw. It was horrendous. It was utterly horrendous. And I, and I say that in all seriousness, people, serious people on both sides who wanted to prosecute an argument around the Constitution, but actually living it and experiencing it, it was divisive. Families were divided. There was a level of anger. I mean, I might have been closer to what it was like out on the streets and on the doors, but I was coming across people who, who were really angry at me and had been empowered to chance scum at me as I was going into meetings. We were having meetings which were ostensibly hustings and debates where basically the notion was developed that it was entirely legitimate just to shout people down. And that's not to say that there weren't serious people on both sides, but as an experience, I think Alex Salmon called it civic and joyous. I can't think of anything that was further away from that. Um, and the notion that, uh, I think as Blair Jenkins, you said, that, well, we won the argument, but we lost the vote. It's like there's something as a teenager about that. Well, I was absolutely right. I just couldn't persuade you, but I'm not going to change my own views. Um, so at, at the same time, my anger and frustration with all of this, I think it was entirely right that we had the referendum. I think it was entirely right, that, and I still think it's right, if people believe that they should be an independent Scotland, they should prosecute that case. But Scotland has paid a very heavy price for the last nine years, it has been an easy place for politicians to go rather than to have a serious conversation about what do we need to do with the economy, what do we need to do about social service, what do we need to do about what's happening in our schools, that it, it, we can default to, well, what is our position on, on, a, on a divide? Actually, I don't think the country felt. I think politicians um, stuck to the divides when other people were saying, well, on balance, I might think that, I might think this. And the price now, I think there's now a time, at this time, we need a degree of seriousness coming out of COVID. I genuinely thought that people would say, right, OK, this is our positions on the Constitution, but see, for now, if we have any power and influence, if we have any resources, we will direct them towards those that we saw. What did we learn out of COVID? That actually those who are most vulnerable, with the least money, who already suffered inequality, experience even more. 
And if we're not spending all our time, energy, talent and resources across political parties thinking about what do we need to do for children who weren't educated for a couple of years, for people who are isolated in their own homes and vulnerable, and what do we do to build up public services? Now, forgive me, I'm happy to engage in whether I think Scotland should be in the United Kingdom or not, but the idea that any of us have got the... Um, I regard it as a, um, an indulgence, frankly, for, for all of us to be thinking only about the constitutional arguments when there's so much that needs to be done and which could be done across party. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Holyrood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with SSE Berwick Bank. We all want a clean energy system that creates jobs, tackles climate change and supports local communities. But to get there takes more than just ambition. It takes action. In Berwick Bank, Scotland can build the world's largest offshore wind farm. That's right, the biggest anywhere, creating thousands of jobs in the process. SSE, as Scotland's clean energy champion, can't wait to get started as soon as the project gets the green light from the Scottish Government. Learn more at berwickbank.com. You are listening to a special episode of Hollywood Sources, where we're looking back at some of the interviews we've had this year with Labour representatives and politicians. So, so far, you've heard from the current leader, Anna Sarwar, the current leader in Scotland, that is, and the former leader in Scotland, who is Joanne Lament, of course. You can listen to those full episodes. They're available for you online in your podcast feed right now. Now, in late October, we spoke to Deputy Leader of the Party, Jackie Bailey, and that was just after the Labour triumph the Labour triumph at the by-election, which took place in the same month in Rutherglen and Hamilton West. My Christmas Day happened on the 5th of October with the Rutherglen <laughs> and Hamilton West by-election, because if you'd said to me going into that by-election, which took a long time because of the recall petition, that we would register a 20.4% swing from the SNP to Labour, um, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But, but what was interesting at that by-election is the number of undecided voters who then... In, during the course of the campaign came over to Labour. Let me deal with the, the issues we raised because it, 
I think we would all agree that the council tax, which the SNP promised to scrap in 2007, is long past its sell-by date. You know, it doesn't work. Um, the last revaluation was 1991. So I was in the bizarre situation in my own constituency where I have people living in new council houses that were in band E. So they were going to be hit by the tinkering around the edges with the council tax to increase the, the, the take on those upper bandings in a way that was unthinkable. So we absolutely needed to oppose that in a cost of living crisis. The fact that the SNP have reacted by saying they'll do a freeze, we welcome a freeze. Anything that stops bills going up um, at a time where people are struggling is something that should be welcomed. But we only do so on the basis that the freeze is fully funded and there is no detail round about that at the moment. So if you talk to the Scottish government, they're modelling the freeze on 3%. You talk to councils and the average that they're talking about is 8%. Now, if the government doesn't fully fund that, you will see catastrophic cuts to services. And, you know, looking at the substance of this, we know that the council tax is not a progressive taxation. Um, and this freeze will help the better off more than it does those who are worst off, some of who pay no council tax at all. Um, so to lose services that would disproportionately benefit those who are least well off, I think would be a, a terrible outcome for the freeze. So the government need to get behind what they've said and not just say we're having a freeze, but actually fully fund it as well so that services aren't cut as a result. I suppose the question um is, you know, the, the, uh, let's say in two and a half years' time, uh, Labour win the election, Jackie Bailey's Deputy First Minister. Um, a lot of governments have said they're going to scrap council tax and replace it with something else. It's very, very, very easy to put in a manifesto, and it's very, very, very difficult to do. And the reason that you know that is that nobody's done it and nobody's actually really even thinking about doing it. So I suppose the fair question is... Um, uh, you know, there will be a policy, I get that, for the election. You will have a policy on local tax, fine. How long will it take to do it? And there must be a threshold somewhere at which point you say, this is just in the too hard box and we've got other stuff to do because that's what every other government has done in the last 20 years. Well, what was interesting is I was one of the members who participated in the Scottish government's um, working group that looked at taxation across the board and looked in particular at a replacement for council tax. You know, we were convinced at the time that the government would take this forward. But you're absolutely right. They just parked it and said, we're, we're not doing this, much to the, the then minister's horror. Um, but we used that information in Labour. We came forward with a replacement property tax with more bans. Um, that it seemed to get support from um, a goodly number of people who are expert in this area that would require a revaluation. And at the moment, there are more people that would gain from a revaluation that, than would lose from it. So I do think we need to bite the bullet. Whatever we do, there needs to be a sustainable form of local government taxation, and we need to reset the relationship with local government. But to be honest with you, we can debate you know, council tax or its, its successor, but it only accounts for about 15% 
of local government funding. 85% comes from the government itself. And the Scottish government over the last, I think, 10 years has cut that by 1 billion. So you see councils struggling today to provide basic services for their local communities because of that history of cuts, which was compounded by the council tax freeze for nine years as well. I think um, really interesting um, response, Jackie. And I think, you know, if I were the SNP right now, I'd take a little bit of heart from the fact that the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have all essentially said, yeah, no, we agree and welcome the freeze, notwithstanding the comments you made about making sure it's fully funded, of course. Uh, and I think going back to Conor Matchett's tweet, I think that's probably what they would be pretty reassured by. But can I bring it to 20? 24 next year and the general election we had uh, jack mcconnell on and he was talking about um the importance perhaps of devolving parts of immigration policy recognizing that scotland has specific needs in that regard and we've talked on the podcast before about you know how are the SNP going to approach this election in which they, they face an uphill struggle and one of the ways may be to try and outflank labor where keir starmer at the uk level has to say something that perhaps Scottish Labour uh, wouldn't necessarily agree with. And I suppose what I'm trying to tease out with, and you won't be telling us your manifesto, and I get that, but will, can we expect to see divergence in policy and policy initiatives ahead of the election from Scottish and UK Labour? There is already policy divergence and, you know, the devolution settlement is as it is because we want that divergence to respond to people's concerns at a local level. But um, let me say to you, I think the difference in approach this time is there is a real prospect of a Labour UK government, the kind of progressive government I have wanted for a long time now, and the relationship that we have with it will be different to the relationship that we have with the current conservative government. I mean, that, that's, that's self-evident. Um, so things like, and I recall Jack in the past brought forward what, what I think was called a fresh talent initiative, yeah. where we looked at, you know, those people who had come to Scotland to study from out with Scotland, actually being able through a visa process to stay in the area for three, four, five, however many years. Um, and that was negotiated with the Labour government as something that we could do in Scotland. I expect lots of joint working on initiatives like that that reflect the needs of Scotland, of our local economy, um, of all of that, um, without necessarily having a constitutional debate about whether you devolve it or not. Um, having that kind of partnership approach, I think, gets us to a better place much quicker. And to be honest, I think we need to get there really quick just now, given the real challenges we have um, in the labour market in Scotland and you know, health in particular. For, as an example. You know what I, th I think is interesting, and we can speculate a little bit here. We don't have to uh, worry too much about getting ahead of ourselves because we like getting ahead of ourselves in this podcast. Um, Politicians love speculating, Andy, so that's good. I know, they do. That's why they like to come on. And, and Jackie's about to do it. I know she is. Um, uh, when when long-term governments get replaced, the, the party that replaces them usually gets a decent kick at the ball. Right, it's usually not a one-term thing. They usually get a pretty good kick at the ball. So you would expect that Keir Starmer, if he wins next year, has probably got a couple of terms at this. Um, similarly, you would expect that if 
things continue to go in that direction for Labour um, and Anas Sarwar becomes First Minister in a couple of years, he'll probably get a pretty good kick at the ball as well. What I'm getting to is saying that they will be in a position where they can afford to take long-term choices and do things that will last for a long time. Now, and and that a lot of that will involve uh, the potential to change the relationship between central and local government quite substantially. So Jackie's talked there about changes to property tax, but actually, if you look around the world at other central local government relationships, not just property tax, actually local authorities in other countries will have lots of options for different taxes they might want to levy. They might have land value taxes, tourist taxes, which is a reasonable thing to talk about today, property taxes, income taxes, a whole range of taxes that they can levy, which makes them significant. So Jackie's talked about 85%. This makes them significantly more responsible for the money that they raise and disaggregates them from central government. Is that something which Labour would look at going far beyond just changing a property tax, but actually changing the relationship the taxation relationship between local and central government completely? Um, It's something we've already looked at because we brought forward proposals for the tourist tax. We brought forward proposals to give local government um, more autonomy over the taxes that they raised. But to be honest with you, it's not just the financing. It's what we do as partners with local government, because I'm very conscious, and this applies to other governments, I'm very conscious that you know we can all talk a good game, we can all provide wonderful policies um, and lots of strategies, but they never get implemented. They sit on a shelf gathering dust, or we pilot something and never mainstream it. Um, local mm-hmm. government is a key delivery agent. I would have thought, for the Scottish government, um, and yet we don't treat them like that. We don't operate as a partnership with them about what the priorities are that we would want them to deliver on, never mind affording them the opportunity to develop local priorities and address them. So I remember, with a degree of amusement, um, John Swinney at the time when he was finance secretary saying, we're removing all ring fencing. And actually, if you look now, all of that ring fencing is back. I think they call it something different. So we need to get to a relationship with local government where we are talking more about outcomes, not inputs, where we are more relaxed about um, the funding settlement. But to be honest, we still tinker at the edges if all it is is 15% when the Scottish government provides 85% of the funding. That was Jackie Bailey talking to us in October. Now, not long after that interview, we had this rather surreal story, didn't we, hitting the headlines. iPad gate. How could you forget? Well, this was when the health minister, Michael Matheson, spent over 11 grand on holiday on his iPad. Or, well, actually, his children did, to be more accurate. And it all got a bit messy. Worth saying, he is still in post. He is still currently running at Health in Scotland. Uh, anyway, the Shadow Secretary of State, Ian Murray, joined us on the podcast. And here's his, in the moment, initial reaction to all of the fallout. I don't think the iPad and the issue of the data is the, the, what, what people are getting at here. I mean, of course, the IT system and whoever's got a SIM card that charges you £11,000 for, what, eight or nine gigs of data, they've obviously got the wrong IT equipment. And But I think it goes back to the character of the, the health secretary himself and the defence from Hamza Youssef that's, that's become the issue. It's never the issue that, that kills you in politics. It's the cover-up. 
and the lie. Um, and if he had, you know, this bill came in in February of this year, and that bill's landed on his doorstep, and he's looked at that bill and decided to try and find a way of getting the public purse to pay for it, rather than just fessing up and saying, "Look, we were on holiday. My kids wanted to watch the old fur game. I set up a hotspot from my iPad. Didn't realise the SIM card was old. Um, sorry, it's come to this. I'll pay it back. I apologise, and it won't happen again. And it would have disappeared. So I think Jeff's right. It would have just gone away. But the the whole charade that we've had since then of cover up. I was used to doing constituency work. I'm blaming everyone else but myself. Um, defence from the First Minister when it was quite clear 48 hours before that that the, he knew something different so it's the cover up that gets you and maybe there is a difference between how we treat people now than we did before um, but actually um, this would have gone away had Michael Matheson himself just fessed up that there was a problem and paid the money back mm. Uh, well, thank you for your emails on that, by the way. It's always good to hear from you. Uh, hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address uh, to get in touch. Uh, Ian, it's great to have you on the podcast this week. Um, there's lots that we want to talk about, actually. I think we should start with um, with Gaza and with the ceasefire votes that have been held now both in Westminster and at Holyrood. Let's start with Westminster, where the SNP motion on uh, calling for a ceasefire was put forward. Just remind us how you voted on that. Well, I voted for, I abstained on that particular amendment, but voted for the Labour Party amendment to the King's speech. And, and just explain the differences then for our listeners. Why did you not vote for the SNP uh, motion or amendment to the King's speech indeed, uh, but you, uh, you voted for the Labour one? Just explain those nuances. Okay, and let me maybe explain a little bit about the process because the debate we were having last Wednesday was a combination of five days of the debate on the King's speech because obviously the King delivered that the Tuesday before. Uh, Parliament then debates that for a number of days and it culminates in votes to either approve or not approve the King's speech come the following Wednesday, which is where we got to on Wednesday. So there was not an actual debate or motion on a ceasefire. This was amendments put forward on the basis of that King's speech debate. So um, the SNP obviously brought their, their uh, amendment to the King's speech. We brought our own amendment, which essentially was broadly similar, with the exception that we are looking for long humanitarian pauses as a starting point and a, as a progress towards any permanent cessation of hostilities. Now, it's easy to say this in hindsight, but, but we knew this was the only deal on the table. Um, both Israel and Hamas had already ruled out a ceasefire. We thought that um, backing that amendment, which the government ultimately would have defeated, which I think people tend to forget as well, um, the government defeated all amendments last Wednesday, they're not going to have their King's speech brought down or amended by an opposition party. That would finish them off completely. Uh, and therefore, what we backed was an amendment, our own amendment, which was our own policy, um, which is broadly similar. Uh, it talked about um, the West Bank, which the SNP motion didn't. It talked about the future uh, peace process to a two-state solution. The SNP motion didn't. Um, it talked about the uh, terrible terrorist attack in Israel with Hamas, which the SNP motion skirted over. And it talked about the fact that what we wanted to do was to try and not let the perfect get in the way of the possible and that was essentially going for long humanitarian pauses um, with hostages released as the starting point and the foundation towards a much longer lasting peace and process and you can see what's happened in the last 24 hours we've now got to that point uh, and been welcomed by all sides uh, including politicians in Palestine themselves um, and everyone is now saying including the UN 
uh, America Qatar, who was the, the key to brokering this, that hopefully this will be the launch pad now for um, talks and trust to be built towards a more lasting uh, peace that we can we can all get behind. So really, I, I think the whole debate in the last week has been very frustrating about backing motions and not. What we were doing essentially as a government in waiting is getting to a point that we were backing what was possible rather than what we would think would be the perfect and that was to get humanitarian pauses and hopefully we'll get we'll see some results from that uh, today or tomorrow with the conclusion of the Qatari and US negotiations. Yeah indeed and it sounds like there's progress on the way on, on that front. And so then we turn to Holyrood to try to understand why there is such a difference in feeling within parties and indeed within the UK on what the correct language to have used up until this point has been, because MSPs uh, backed the motion in the Scottish Parliament by 90 votes to 28, which called for an immediate ceasefire in the conflict. The motion won the support of all parties except the Conservatives, who had been calling for humanitarian pauses. How would you explain that apparent rift in the in the Labour Party's kind of direction of travel and choice of language when it comes to what our parliamentarians are calling for? Well, I suppose there's three things to answer that, Cam. The first one is I wrote to... Um, Stephen Flynn last week before in advance of the vote to say, look, this is the most difficult issue that any of us ever have to deal with um, at the same time as being completely and utterly powerless. So there's a real contradiction there as well. Um, and Parliament works best and political parties work best in these kinds of crisis moments, particularly in terms of international crisis, when we work together. Um, and that was just point blankly refused. There was no working together. There was no coming together. I think what happened in the Scottish Parliament last night, and I haven't, I haven't seen all the details of this, but the um, motion was put forward by the SNP. Um, the Labour Party put forward an amendment which the SNP agreed to. Um, that amendment strengthened and widened the scope of the motion that was put forward. Uh, and therefore, both parties, including the Greens and the Lib Dems, I think, uh, uh, in the end, uh, came together and said this motion, whilst not perfect, we will back it because it seems to be a good way forward in terms of, of where to get to. Um, the Conservatives haven't backed it, um, of course, and, and they're perfectly entitled to do that. Um, but I think the difference between Scotland and the rest of the UK is that um, there is no doubt the UK Parliament, and I'm not talking about political parties here, but there's no doubt the UK Parliament has a strong role to play in this. You know, the UK is a member of the a permanent member of the Security Council, um, influential in terms of um, channels with sister parties, whether they be Conservative or otherwise. Um, uh, David Lamy, our Shadow Foreign Secretary, was in um, uh, Palestine and uh, Israel this week. He's been in Egypt, he's been in Jordan, he's been in Qatar, trying to pull together what influence we might have, albeit small, in the region. So I think the difference here is, is, is just about trying to get over the line the possible, whereas, of course, we all agree on one thing, and that's we want this to end, and we want it to end yesterday. Um, but that is not necessarily possible. Do you know, in that, you heard Ian Murray sort of offering some clarity, really. Uh, and and I think one thing that, that sort of strikes me about the guests that we have on Hollywood Sources is their willingness to talk and their willingness to explore ideas and policies and their proposals as well. And I think, actually, that's really important. We're heading into a general election year, 2024, and what we need is constructive conversation about politics and public policy. And that's very much what we've set out to do on Hollywood Sources, and I hope you hear that, and I hope you feel like you're getting that. 
because it's really what we want to do. It's what you heard a bit of there from Ian Murray. It's what you hear from guests every single week. It's what you'll continue to hear into 2024 as well. So stick with us. Follow the podcast. If you subscribe, you can pay four ninety nine a month. You will not hear adverts if you do that. Uh, that makes quite a nice experience, doesn't it? And you're supporting the pod as well for all the events and things that we want to try and put on for you in 2024 in what is going to be a crucial, crucial year. Clarity, constructive conversation, and a bit of fun here and there as well. We did an episode at the pub, for goodness sake. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Uh, you can go and have a listen to that as well. Uh, thanks for being here. Our SNP episode is already online. You've just been listening to our labour episode and there's lots more to come. Thank you.